Chris, good morning. Alphas can be dismissed. Uh, as we turn to Acts chapter 5, as we continue in our series in the gospel, or the gospel of Acts, the book of Acts, um, we're going to be at Minig today at 3 o'clock uh, for another service that we get to serve the, the folks that live there. If any of you want to join us, you would be welcome to do so. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 5. You can find that on page 1084 of the Pew Bible. Uh, and would you please stand for the reading of the Word of God if you are able. We're going to read the first 11 verses. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for her, himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me, whether you sold the land for so much? And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Father, we thank you for this passage. God, we ask for your help. Um, God, as we see uh, how you take sin seriously, God, we, as we just sang, God, would you wash us, Savior, lest we die. God, would you help us to approach this difficult passage with uh, an open mind and an open heart, uh, a soft heart, to respond to your gospel, to respond to your call. God, would you be glorified in our time together. Speak through me to your people, including myself. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So when I was a boy, I would go to school every day, and my dad would make me a lunch every single day. My dad is more of a man of routine than I am, uh, and he would make me the same exact sandwich every single day. And every single day, oh, you don't even know, every single day, I would throw it away because I did not like the meat that he used. And I won't tell you what the meat is, lest I offend any of you, but I hated it. And I would take my quarter, I'd go get my little carton of milk, and that would be my lunch. And I survived. I was fine. 
Dad, if you're listening, I'm sorry. I've probably never told you this, and I love you. Well, this passage is hard to read, right? Maybe you'd want to throw it out. Ananias and Sapphira, they were part of the church. Why would God do this? If they acknowledge belief in the gospel, where's the grace? One commentator suggested that no passage, or perhaps no passage in Acts, raises more serious difficulties for the Christian reader as this passage we are in this morning. We must understand this text in its broader context, what comes before it and also what comes after it to make a whole sandwich, right? You got some bread that you got to add to this meat. And I think it will help us to interpret this hard passage and apply it to our lives today. And repentance is that continued drumbeat that we've seen over the last few weeks in the last few chapters. And today we'll see just two things in our passage as we'll go back a little bit to chapter four. That today we'll see that repentance is a voluntary part of the church. And repentance is also a matter of our heart. Turn back to chapter 4, verse 32, and this will give us some context of what we just read. This is where we finished last week in verse 31, and 32 says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a greedy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was, called also, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so repentance is a response to the grace that we receive by God, and it is a mark of this community that we see in the early church as they respond to the grace that God has given them to each other, where they are unified in mind, they are unified in heart, they share their possessions, and they begin to bear witness to the world around them of how great their God is and the grace of God rested upon this church. This church, they acknowledged that they had no personal rights. They were unselfish. They acknowledged that everything that they had belonged to the Lord. And that included their land. And land for them is kind of like a farmer back in the day that depended on everything that they had on their farm to live and to survive and have a livelihood. And this church was of one heart, it was one mind, that there was a driving force behind all that they did. They had one soul, they were knit together and unified, and they had open hands related to their possessions. 
And as new people even joined the church, as we've seen thousands have joined this early church, it didn't change the unity that they had around God's word and around the gospel because new people bring in new ideas and new people bring in new perspectives and new histories and they may want to change things, but they remain unified around the scriptures. The dynamic of the church may have changed, but the unity and the preferences were to follow the scriptures, to follow the gospel, to be united around that, and then to live in light of that. And we see in the text that great power, the testimony of the Lord, also brought great grace upon them in verse 36. God's grace made them a more gracious people. And most importantly, this community, their generosity was communal around an identity of who they were as a body, and it was voluntary. Deuteronomy 15, 4, back in the Old Testament law, says that there will be no poor among you, speaking of God's people. And in 1511, a few verses later, it says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, speaking to God's people, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. And so socially, they were obligated to each other. And they considered probably Jesus' call in Matthew 25 to clothe and heal and provide food and water and shelter and to care for one another in the church community. But Jesus said, this in Matthew 25 verse 40 truly truly I say to you or truly I say to you as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers you did it to me and so this church in serving one another are now serving their Lord but on the contrary if they did and Jesus gave them this warning a couple verses later in 45 to 46 then he will answer them saying truly I say to you as you did not do it to me to one of the least of these you did not do it to me. And these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So our actions show us what's in our hearts. A change of heart is manifesting itself in this early church with generosity. And the verb tense here signifies that this was a regular, continued practice of the church. And before we go any further, this is not about tithing or giving. It's about repentance. And giving is an outward sign of what is really happening in our hearts. Out of a changed heart, they submit to God, acknowledging the authority of the apostles. They bring their possessions and they lay them at the apostles' feet that everything belongs to God. And so we trust you, apostles, to do as you see fit with it. And Barnabas becomes this exemplary person, this one who voluntarily repents to be the example and significant contrast to Ananias and Sapphira. And Luke gives him some details about Barnabas, right? He's, like, he's a Levite from Cyprus. Cyprus is not as important as the fact that he's a Levite because in the Old Testament law, Levites weren't allowed to own land. They were forbidden to own land. So maybe he inherited it, but he sells the land that he shouldn't have owned to begin with. And generosity is his way of turning his disobedience of owning this land 
to an act of repentance and laying the proceeds of this land before the apostles' feet. He shouldn't have owned it to begin with. So he sells it and he gives it to the church voluntarily. It wasn't like some cults around here that say, well, you are required to give a certain percentage of your income. In Psalm 50, verse 10 and 11, it says of God, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. And so God already owns this land. Barnabas shouldn't own this land. And so he gives it back to God as a visible sign of the change that's going on in his heart to respond to this voluntary community project of generosity. And you see how this paints a picture of what we see with Ananias and Sapphira, the stark contrast between these two people? Where repentance is this voluntary aspect of this church community and most importantly, it's a matter of the heart, and that's what we see with Ananias and Sapphira. So let's look at what Peter does and what happens with Ananias first. Not giving everything to God that Ananias had already committed to do, it shows what's in his heart, as we see in the text. And what this word, this verb means of holding back, and it really means to pilfer or to embezzle. Slates people into jail right now in our world. And there's a story in the Old Testament where this word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. You might know the story in the book of Joshua. A guy named Achan was gone into the city of Jericho. No, I think it was Jericho. Might have been a different one. Doesn't matter. Where the loot and the booty of the destruction of that town was to be given and dedicated to the worship of the Lord. And this guy Achan, this word held back for himself some of those items that were to be designated to the Lord. And the same thing happened to Achan that happened to Ananias and Sapphira. And the Lord took his life. And this church wasn't perfect like ours. But this sin is not inconsequential. Our sin or our lack of repentance, it shows what's in our hearts. This church, remember we just saw in that previous section, was of one mind and one heart. But Ananias still had one foot in the community of the church, while another groping for a toehold on the worldly security of earthly possessions. He just wasn't willing to give it all up. And the Spirit is the one who is moving in this church to strengthen this church. But Ananias' actions deny that the Spirit is even there. And that's why Peter asked him, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Satan has infiltrated this early church just five chapters into the book of Acts and it's manifested in Ananias' actions, his motivation for money. So now go back and let's consider Barnabas. After hearing about the good example in verse 1, it says, but. It's a stark contrast. You heard about this very generous, repentant man, Barnabas, but, but Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. And it shows a heart that lacks repentance and the consequences of that. 
And so Ananias, in his secrecy, in his deviancy, in his collusion, the deceit in his heart, verse 4, Peter says, Was it not at your own disposal to voluntarily give to the community? Ananias lied to God. Peter says, to the Spirit. And in case you didn't know that, church, that's a bad thing to do. And so what began with Barnabas as a good example, a great example of voluntary community generosity and repentance, the opposite is manifested in Ananias, in Sapphira. He could have given 100%. He could have said, I'll give you 80%. He could have said, I'll give you 50%. He could have said, I'll just give you a tithe of 10%. But he said, I'll give 100 And he didn't, while still insinuating that he did. And so Ananias' heart was full of sin and deceit. Wanting a reputation for generosity, he deceives the Spirit who gave life to this early church. And he did so by fleecing the church. Rarely in Scripture is the topic of money actually about money. It's a sign of what is going on in our hearts so that we might consider how we would respond to the grace of God in our own lives. And Ananias and Sapphira land, it belonged to them. They could own it where Barnabas could not own it. And this couple had more freedom than Barnabas, but they used their freedom to sin and it cost them everything. It cost Ananias his life because God takes sin seriously. And Ananias is a reminder for us, church, to check our hearts. That great power we talked about in that last section, that grace, grace that was on that church, you see in verse 5, has turned to great fear. Ananias received divine judgment. Voluntarily and communal, the heart is the source, church, of where true repentance comes from, but it's displayed in our actions. And Ananias, he led his wife poorly. Instead of informing the widow of her loss, in verse 7, Peter dives right into her heart. He gives her the opportunity to repent as well, and she makes the same fatal error that her husband does, and it ends with the same fatal consequence. They were of one mind too. But it's a different one mind than the church had. And God cannot be fooled. They tested the spirit, the same word used of Satan when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Spiritually dead, they are now physically dead. Guilty of sin. And great fear struck the community again, we see in verse 7, where Peter was the spokesman but the judgment ultimately belonged to God. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And verse 11 emphasizes again this great fear upon the church. Repentance means change. It's not being sorry alone. It's not being sad. It's not being, okay, I will do it. It is taking actions to change by the grace of God. And when Ananias and Sapphira were unwilling to repent, God did the work of cleansing the church on his own. 
A lack of repentance should drive the church to fear. Fear is a distasteful word, is it not? It makes us want to chuck the sandwich in the trash can. But the church needs to fear God. Not as dread, but as reverent worship. In considering the context, the church can only thrive if its lives within the totality of the church is unified in one heart, in one mind, flourishing by the power of the Spirit in repentance according to the Scriptures. Where Barnabas stands here, and Ananias and Sapphira stand here, the chasm is great. And God knows the heart. The heart. And so which side would we want to voluntarily choose to be on? And so cleansed and faced with a choice, look what they do in verse 12 of chapter 5. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, by, added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out to the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that Peter came by at least, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And so purged from their sin and their disunity and their duplicity and their hypocrisy, the Spirit now equips the church to live a genuine, spiritually powerful life of witness where they live. Miracles continue to be a means by which the ministry of the Word of God continues to thrive in the book of Acts. And with fear in the back of their minds, you see, even in the text, some of them were hesitant to join. Last time they were in Solomon's portico, they were preaching, they were healing. And Peter was asked after he shared the gospel to a group that was listening to them. And they asked him, what should we do? And this was what started this whole section. He said, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and believe. Believe and repent. It is the march song of the church. And we tend to focus over this last few weeks on the tongues of fire or the miracles or the shadows healing people. But the focus of these last few chapters is repentance. And so let's not miss the forest by looking at a couple trees. So purged of sin, this church is committed to their, in their hearts to voluntarily give themselves to repentance. And the Spirit uses this to grow the church. As the ministry of the Word goes out, you see that the proclamation of the gospel is starting to transform the community that they live and work and where they go to worship. 
It's those who believe the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that make up this church. And that message now goes out, did you see it in verse 16, to the outskirts around Jerusalem, to the towns around Jerusalem. The message is leaving Jerusalem because they will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so for us today, I think we need to consider the question, where do we need to repent? My kids can sniff hypocrisy in me like that. One of them mentioned it yesterday. The world can smell hypocrisy in the church too. I think better than anyone. Repentance starts here, church. We oftentimes approach things, well, will those people outside the church, they need to change. I don't like what they're doing. But what may God have of us to voluntarily give ourselves to in repentance? Because we see in the text, right, repentance is voluntary. They gladly sold their stuff. They gave up their rights for the sake of others and others didn't even in that church. And so I pray that deceit doesn't characterize us and the world can see that we don't live two separate lives because we know most importantly that God sees it and knows it all. Friends, we can lie to the world around us, but we cannot lie to God. And so how you act at work or you talk to your boss or you engage with the person who cuts you off on the interstate with a license plate that's not from Vermont or you ignore the clerk at the store or you talk to the telemarketer or about the telemarketer on the phone or you speak of that governmental leader. I think it's okay to voluntarily love them. The world knows a little bit about what the Bible says and they know enough to say, ah, that church is a bunch of hypocrites. Just like you can decide who's a hypocrite. But it's, be it's better, church, to voluntarily repent than be forced to repent by God. I don't know your heart. Your elders don't your, know your heart. Your spouse probably doesn't even know all of your heart. Does that scare you? Or does it give you a posture of hubris to just keep doing what you want to do? So where would the Lord be calling you to repent? The test that we see in the book of Acts was generosity. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, Each one must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Your money is your own. But have you made a commitment to the Lord that you might not have kept? Giving to the church is one of the easiest ways to contribute to the needs of the saints. We have a benevolence ministry to serve one another when things come up, and we have used it for that. If you're a guest here and not part of this church, uh, we don't ask you to give us anything. This is a family matter that we're discussing. We want to give you the gospel. We want to serve you. Kristen and I, we made a commitment once 
our church did a capital campaign uh, 10 years or so ago in, in California, and we decided that we would increase our percentage of giving to help fund what the church wanted to accomplish. And as you know, I, I was a commission-based job, and so if I get a commission check, that percentage might have stayed the same, but the dollar amount was to go up. And sometimes when I get those checks, it's like, I don't know if I want to give that extra amount. Just because it's voluntary doesn't mean it's easy. What gave may God be pressing in on your heart this morning? In this church in the book of Acts, greed needed to die. But maybe for you, it's something else. Do you need to block a website that's distracting you from work or family or even your purity? Do you need a new job to give you time to rest? Or maybe worry needs to die, and so a new job would help you to alleviate some of the worry that you have. Do you need to get off social media to focus your attention on God and His approval for you as opposed to what other people might say or think or like about you? Do you need to give up food or drink that drowns out maybe some sadness and rely on God? What's the Spirit pressing in on you right now? You might write it down. You might invite a friend or a spouse to come alongside you and confess to them, this is what I'm struggling with. Would you help me? Would you pray for me? Would you come alongside me? Would you keep me accountable? We can make judgments on each other based on our actions, just like Peter did. Some of you might be thinking, well, hey, pastor, we are not supposed to judge. This is what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 5.12 says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? We assume that the world will sin, right? Because they're sinners, and sinners do that. But we are to and called to pass judgment on what's happening in the church. This is called discipline. And if our sin leads to death, that we can voluntarily and community-wide come to reject that sin and help each other to kill that sin before it kills us, why wouldn't we want to do that? I want you to do that to me. At least I am right now. When you come and tell me, tell me, Aaron, back on December or October, what's the date? Twenty eighth. The day we got sleet, you said you can confront me. Okay, so you have freedom to do that. We should be able to ask each other, "Hey, brother or sister, was that sin in your heart manifesting itself?" And if sin persists in the church, God instructs us to call each other to repentance. And if repentance doesn't happen, it is love that we are called to a very scary word, have some excommunication. And that is not execution. That's not killing one another like you're dead to me. Excommunication just means prohibition from partaking in communion. Communion is for Christians. It's for believers, not for unbelievers. And so Christians who act like non-Christians 
like a sinner that is not repenting, that need to hear the gospel, we are saying, do not take communion. Do not re-sacrifice, as Paul would say in Corinthians, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so will we be like Barnabas or will we be like Ananias and Sapphira? Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty miracles in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's the fear that you might be feeling right now, that we should respond to the Lord. If I'm not living according to his word, wash me, Savior, or I die. And it's not a means to scare the church. It's the means to call the church to live a repentant light and worship. And once this church was purified from inside, from one's own heart, you see in the text that this church grew. And the message of the purified church spread around the world. And repentance, it fueled the mission as they went and proclaimed the gospel. And repentance keeps our message and our practice aligned. John the Baptist called his disciples to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And personal fruit turned into community fruit, which turned into missional fruit. And so as we live according to the scripture, the world around us will see it. The world will also hear the gospel from our mouths, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for those who believe. It becomes good news. And so if you aren't a Christian, believe the gospel. Join the family that we're going to continue to repent together. God is not a dread or fear of fear for those who believe. But those who don't, It is. We'd love to talk to you more about that. God gives grace to those who believe to live so that we might not die like Ananias and Sapphira. Because Jesus lived a perfect life without sin. He died a sinner's death that we should have died for our own sin. He rose to give us a new life that we could not live otherwise. A life without sin. A life of repentance. And so for the last few weeks we have heard Luke record for the church to hear the gospel proclaimed. To believe the gospel as it's proclaimed and to repent of our sin and turn and follow God from our heart. I think a life that lacks repentance is a test of actual belief of what's going on in our hearts. So let's consider that, church, as we close out our time this morning. Father, we thank you for this word and its difficulties and its challenges. God, we thank you for the grace that we receive, that we receive from your son who died on the cross for our sins, who give us a life 
that we could not attain otherwise in raising from the dead a new life that we can be dead to sin and alive to you. And God, we as a church, we proclaim and pray as Psalm 128 says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labors of your hand. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Father, we thank you that we have peace through your son. And God, would you help us to be a church that lives according to your word by the power of your spirit because of the grace that we've received through your son. And we pray and we lift up and we want to lift up our voice in song to you to sing how great you are. And we pray this all in Jesus' name.